Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a Madeline slash Renata. I'm Rebecca, and I'm a Madeline slash Jane. I'm Teresa, and I'm a Jane slash Bonnie, and we're here talking about Season 2, Episode 4, Big Little Lies, She Knows. Um, you might hear a slight difference, because for the first time, we're not all in the same room recording. Um, we probably sound better, honestly, hopefully. Both <laughs> um, Carolyn, you want to start with this week's recap? Yeah. All right. So a lot happens in this episode, but really what you will always remember this episode for is Nicole Kidman bitch slapping Mary Louise Streep. But before we get to that, uh, I guess we start at the beginning of the episode. Uh, We start with a totally normal pumpkin carving party at Madeline's house. All the kitties are there carving precocious pumpkins. Then Mary Louise just shows up uninvited with a bunt cake to see her grandchildren, all of them, Ziggy, run. Mary Louise also eyes Bonnie up in a weird way. What does Mary Louise know? So Mary Louise announces she has found an apartment that happens to be right in the same building as Jane. Celeste confronts her because this is obviously a really odd choice to live with her son's victim. Mary Louise says she doesn't believe Jane is a victim and full on implies that Perry was just a darling cheater. Celeste has had enough of this and slaps Mary Louise clear across the bucktooth face and it's amazing. Meanwhile, Madeline has taken up smoking to cope with the stress, and honestly, we can't blame her. Mary Louise and Celeste meet up after the slap at a coffee shop, the one that looks like a Burning Man sculpture, and Mary Louise accuses Celeste of coming unhinged. And she's not wrong. You know, one here in Monterey is hinged right now, uh, as my favorite Chloe points out in her brilliant school project. But it still feels so wrong that Mary Louise is filing for custody of the twins, even if they seem to love eating pizza with her in the weirdest way. I've never been more turned off by cheese or pizza, by the way. And even if Celeste is making questionable decisions like combining Ambien and alcohol and having tattooed bartenders who don't know how to quietly exit and avoid awkwardness after they stay the night. But he's the hottest man we've seen in Monterey so far, so we can't really blame her on that. Madeline still feels like smug fuck smug fuck Ed is just ignoring her and giving her the cold shoulder rather than talking or leaving after finding out she cheated. She is desperate to get him to talk and is begging him to go to a therapeutic couples retreat. Renata and Gordon's marriage is also crashing and burning as they head to bankruptcy court where they are literally stripped of their Rolex, their wedding ring, and that Tesla Renata so perfectly drove off in. They leave sad and shorn of wealth in a cab. But before we have time to feel too bad for them, we realize that they can still rally and throw one hell of a 70s shindig for their precocious eight-year-old daughter, Amabella. Uh, it's nice to know that this town, despite everything, can still put on ridiculous costumes and boogie, even if it is ironically to burn baby burn. Uh, so this party, the last time we saw all these people come together at a party in costumes, someone died. So it's not surprising that this whole party feels a little bit tense and ill at ease, despite the glittery gold berets and big wigs. Bonnie point blank asked Celeste and Madeline what Scary Louise knows as she felt her beady little eyes looking at her at the pumpkin party. Celeste admits that she feels Mary Louise is blaming her and she wishes they had just told the truth. And of course, Madeline takes offense to this and calls them out for talking behind her back, even though it was right to her face. Bonnie's mother, Elizabeth, notices the tension among the Monterey Five and tells her daughter this is really clouding up her clairvoyant energy with negativity. Bonnie just tries to dance and sways suspiciously with smug fuck Ed, who doesn't want to dance and pretend with his wife. 
And just when we think maybe, maybe we'll get through this party without someone getting hurt, Ed and Nathan obviously prove that they are children and get into a pissing and shoving match. And Ed's ridiculous wig gets knocked off. And, uh, you know, honestly, though, after the slap earlier in the episode, this just seems downright embarrassing. These two men shoving each other. Jane has brought that aquarium man to the party. And when they're slow dancing, she has rape flashbacks and has to go outside for air where this guy follows her and she tells him all about her rape but I still don't like him. The party is winding down. Everyone has made it out alive, or so we think, until Bonnie's mom has flashes of psychic vision light and has a stroke. We almost made it. At the hospital, Bonnie is having visions of her own flashbacks to her mom being pretty abusive to her. And with all this adding to her stress, it's no surprise that when she sees Detective Quinlan in the hospital, she attacks her. Mary Louise gives Celeste the papers and tells her she is officially trying to get custody of the boys right after finding Celeste in that groggy hangover with the overnight guest. Celeste goes to her good doctor who seems oddly detached here and just tries to assure her that she, the doctor, can't testify against Celeste. Meanwhile, Jane goes over to her neighbor, Scary Louise, to stand up for Celeste and find out if she intends to take Ziggy, too. But Mary Louise tells Jane that she thinks Jane is a great mother. She probably just likes Jane because she's tall. Mary Louise explains that she has never uh, seen that she has Mary Louise explains that she has seen drawers full of pull, pills at Celeste's house and asks her if she'd ever put Ziggy in a car with Celeste. And sadly, we don't get an answer from Jane. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Bonnie's mom wakes up from surgery to a dream of Bonnie floating face down in the water. What is going to happen? Well, one thing I can tell you is probably going to happen because I'm recording at my house today is that my 18 year old cat is going to start screaming because he's <laughs> and um, right now he's sitting on my lap, probably purring into the microphone because it's the only way to keep him quiet. So if you guys hear weird cat noises today, that won't why. be anything new. <laughs> I can't keep him out of the room, unfortunately. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's start with the Halloween party. Um, Mary Louise shows up uninvited to this party, and I want to know, does she just have bad manners, or is this some sort of ploy on her part? 100% ploy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and she's trying to demonstrate her good manners because she arrives with that fucking cake. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you think the ploy is about, though? Like, what what's her plan here? I think she's just trying to get increased proximity to the group because the closer she is, the more she can see. Mm-hmm. She's trying to watch the behavior. I mean, she's clearly trying to scope out Bonnie. I think it's it's clever, and it's um, exactly what Carolyn said. She's also trying to demonstrate how personable she can pretend to be, even though all of the characters in this room at this point pretty much have Mary Louise's number. I don't think anyone is oblivious to what's going on here. But that's a power move to go into a situation like that and seem innocuous when everybody knows you're not. I know, she's real weird. Um, and she's also, so she's given Bonnie this weird side eye. Is it just because Bonnie is being such a weirdo lately? Or is it, does she think, does she suspect Bonnie of something? I think that, uh, I, I think that she suspects Bonnie of something. Bonnie is the only one we haven't really seen her get a chance to interact with yet. Or see up close. And uh, so I think that, that, checking Bonnie out was a big part of her arriving at this party. Maybe she's just racist. (laughs) I would not be surprised. (laughs) I would not be surprised with scary Louise. Nothing surprises me with her anymore. 
I mean, just like this is probably a note that overarches not only this entire episode, but the entire season. It's like, is this show going to engage with race in a more meaningful way? Are we going to continue just to kind of use race as a trope? (laughs) Guys, there. I don't think there's an answer. Cat up onto her lap. I, 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 you you asked this incredibly, this incredibly brilliant question, Rebecca, and all I can see is like Teresa over there, like you know, heavy petting a cat. Um, I don't have an answer for that question, FYI. I'm just going to answer, ask it, and we'll keep following up because I do I'm think not, it's interesting. I think it is. It, it thinks it's engaging with race in a more meaningful way just by bringing Bonnie's mom in who points out that there are no other black people. They're like, see, we, we pointed it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, and they, they think that's enough. And then and we're going to throw white Ed in a terrifying Afro. And yeah, no, I do. He looks like my uncle Joe from the seventies. So I was like, maybe that's just like an Italian Afro. I don't know. Oh. Fair. No, I don't know. There's this episode of Real Housewives of New York where Luann, the countess, comes dressed to a Halloween party as uh I I, I can't remember. She either goes as um she goes as some like 70s singer, like a black singer. And she uh. does it in questionable blackface. Like she's very tan. Mm-hmm. And it was so off-putting. And that's what all I could think of was this was like Countess Luann and her totally like tone deaf costume i just think all these women purport themselves to be so woke like i'm really surprised that madeline or you know renata didn't make some like offhand comment about like ed's cultural appropriation like they all know what that is like and the fact that bonnie's just like coolly dancing with him it's like bonnie slap this fool we've already had one in this episode yeah i the relationship between bonnie and ed is really odd Odd. Like, yeah, it's getting odder. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but it is definitely something that uh, I want to talk about when we get to the dance disco. Because yeah. you know, there's something weird that hasn't necessarily been, like, built up enough in my mind. But whatever, we'll get there. I'm sorry, that's me jumping ahead just of my my <laughs> through line here. I'm going to bring us back to the party for a minute because I also want to talk about Renata and... Madeline smoking and Renata complaining about being bankrupt and she talks about how she's got to go to court but that they're opening it for her on a Saturday so she doesn't have to be around all those other penniless people and she's saying this to Jane who is a single mom who lives in an apartment paid for by somebody else (laughs) and I'm like why does Jane not just want to choke this bitch I would I would be like you are gonna make your next paycheck will be more than she makes at the aquarium in like the next six months. What is your problem? Well, I think Jane, Jane has a, a, a sensitivity mm-hmm. and, and kind of, I mean, she is in some ways more equipped to handle things than these women. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that that's how she approaches Renata. Like, Jane does, I think it's sometimes easier. Like if, if you hadn't, don't have great wealth, and that, you know, then to have had great wealth like Renata has. And that is clearly how Renata defines herself. It's how she, you know, sees success. It's what she wants for Amabella. It's like everything she wants. So Jane is like seeing her in this like tragic downfall in a way that, you know, she's understanding the pain that she's going through rather than like internalizing the like jealousy of like, like, shut the fuck up. You have this gorgeous house and have had this gorgeous life. Mm-hmm. I think Jane is able to separate that. 
I really don't have much of a comment on this because all I could think of during this scene was why is Madeline smoking a nicotine cigarette in 2019 <laughs> when all of the CBD and THC products available in California that are legal? I'm like, that is a continuity error and I'm not no, about it. See, I don't think it is because I feel like Madeline probably. So, you know, we've again addressed the difference between like a millennial and a Ooh. and a, like a Gen Xer and a Gen Xer would have smoked up through their 20s, probably, right? Like, at least socially at parties or, you know, when they were stressed. Like, think about on, like, you know, Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. You know, they smoked on that. And we do see Bonnie smoking weed on the beach, right, at some point? Like, in maybe in the last yeah. episode or yeah, something? So it's it's like a, another differentiator. So this is, we're just going to say weed is the currency of millennials now? I don't buy it. <laughs> we just I for everyone because like Madeline is older like obviously someone our age if someone if if one of us like whipped out a cigarette even in a time of stress I'd be like whoa, Slap it out whoa. Of hand <laughs> and I'd replace it with a nice marijuana joint and say please yeah yeah I mean I just think that it's a difference in um you know it, it's just a a cultural difference in age I, I I do think that people who are you know in their 40s or 50s like that smoking was it was a different time for for them and even though they knew that smoking was bad it was still more prevalent well psa smoking is still bad do not also smoke. psa weed is illegal still in even a lot if of places you're a Gen Xer, don't do it <laughs> well maybe maybe that it's meant to show us like just how stressed out she is right like it's so bad that she has to smoke a cigarette well, and she, is, like, saying she isn't enjoying it right she says i hate smoking she Cat's making another entrance, guys. Sorry, he just keeps getting up and down, up and down. He's insane. Um. <laughs> One of these days, we got to start videoing us recording because really, you're missing a crucial component of the hilarity here. Which is cats. Which is yeah. cats. It's always cats. Three cat ladies is the, <laughs> the unofficial title of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to this week's installment of Shit Mary Louise Says, um, which gets her slapped this week in the most satisfying thing that's ever happened on the show. Um, So she says a lot of stuff to Celeste to get herself slapped. At first she says about, you know, when Celeste sort of says, do you think it's okay to, like, move into the same apartment building as your son's victim? And she's like, well, I'm not as convinced as you are that she was raped. And then she starts insinuating that there must have been other affairs and it's all Celeste's fault. And um, that's really what kind of gets her slapped. And even my pacifist boyfriend who like doesn't like mob movies because he thinks they glorify violence was like, that bitch deserved to be slapped. Um, And then what she says to Celeste is, should we call that foreplay? Because for some reason, Celeste has told her, mother-in-law that her and her now dead son like to have rough sex I mean this is I'm does Mary Louise know exactly what she's doing in this moment when she says oh is that what we call foreplay just all of it like no I I think she sets that up knowing Celeste is going to react that way and knowing that's more you know currency yeah pile of argument about the custody of the twins which comes up later i think everything mary louise has been doing has been to trigger celeste's you know latent violence that she's also trying to come to grips with and i think that mary louise you know it goes back to that scene a couple episodes ago where she pushed one of the twins and mary louise the camera was like very intentional on following up with mary louise's face 
So I think that Mary Louise is uh, definitely just trying to do whatever she can to increase her position in this forthcoming custody hearing. I agree. I think that Mary Louise came in knowing she came in hot, ready to try to press all of Celeste's buttons and she succeeded and she is looking for, uh, she's, she's looking for stuff to hold against Celeste and Celeste is just delivering left and right in this episode. As far as, you know, she's hitting her, uh, you know, she's abusing drugs and alcohol. She's having, you know, she's sleeping with, as far as Mary Louise knows, strangers. Like, I, I think that that's the guy that we've seen her with before, at least fantasizing about maybe. But the point is, is Celeste is is definitely in trouble because Mary Louise is looking for these things mm-hmm. and trying to draw them out. And in, and I think it's Mary Louise who drove her to a lot of this behavior anyway. Right, yeah. So let's get to Disco Inferno. Because <laughs> let's. Shit is a mess. So after Ubering home from their day in court, which isn't like Renata on the Uber board or something, like she said, yeah. like got to take their cars. I feel like they're uh, not even in an Uber, though, because there was like a meter. Like, I think it was like an old school cab, which oh, is somehow what? even more like demeaning. God, what's an old school cab? Yeah, I, I know. Anymore. How do you find one in Monterey? You know, like, I don't know. I had to take one in the city the other day and it was awful. You're like, who, how many people have thrown up in here? Well, because, you know, cabs have like those walls up yeah. between like you and the driver. They had a tube running. They had cut a hole and were using like cheap PVC piping to pipe air conditioning into the back of the cab for you. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was wild. I I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, so Renata throws the world's worst children's birthday party, which is disco themed, despite it being for an eight year old who has no idea what disco is and is being forced to dress in the exact same gold lame outfit as her mother. Like I was like, kind of, I kind of thought that was cute. I, <laughs> I can I mean, as, the as gesture or the outfits? Uh, everything. I don't know. I wasn't mad at any of it. I'm sorry. I, I know that you want me to be, but I'm not. Let's be honest. You're one step away from dressing in the same outfit as Prince Harry and throwing him a party. Oh, oh, we did dress alike. That's why this is her cat, not the, uh, not to be <laughs> Prince of England. Yeah, Prince actual. Harry and I had matching Christmas sweaters this year. Oh, oh my God. All right. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> and there aren't social media pictures of it that everyone could find already. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, I mean, is she even pretending this is about Amabella anymore? Like, at least the last time she threw an insane party, it was Frozen themed. But now we've got the it's tramps. So- was it the yeah, tramps? Yeah, the tramps. Was, yeah. Are actually there singing, which... For, Poor the tramps. Who has to, they have to play Amabella's birthday party. But, like, this isn't about. I'll tell you what, though. Like, that's going to at least be a 15K guarantee. So. Yeah. This is, I think, I I think the point of this episode, I I mean, I don't really even remember. I guess the same chronological time when Amabella's birthday occurred last year. And there is that line, like, her birthday's not even for another week. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a lot less about that and more about, like, they're setting up, like, the final fall of the Kleins. Like, I think this is going to come back and bite them in a big way. That Like, you know, they just had that long scene where she hadn't declared her ring or the Tesla or the watch. And they have to turn all of that stuff over right in front of the judge. Mm -hmm. I think that 100% 
someone's going to find out about this. And the two of them, I mean, can you imagine if Renata ends up in jail next season? Like, <laughs> or, like Orange is Black, Renata Klein crossover? Like, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> I am sure orange is not a color she likes wearing. But I, I think that this party was definitely like kind of that last hurrah. You know, it was this, like a great Gatsby fueled <laughs> uh, pretending like Ed says yeah, right? We're pretending yeah. not poor now which poor. and but how much how many people at the party other than maybe just the her close-knit of the Monterey Five do people know in town like do you think word has spread well he got arrested in public I'm sure that's true knows. yeah he got arrested in public. this <laughs> is not only like supremely misguided but it's a supremely dumb move like, yeah. and it's not like anybody in Monterey can keep their mouth shut or even cares enough about the clients to protect them at this point. Like, mm-hmm. everyone in that room wants to see them go down in the messiest, most public fashion, and they're just setting themselves up for that. I'm surprised that the police officer wasn't there dressed up in a disco dud. <laughs> Where do you, I mean, how do you, is she just paying the tramps in cash? Like, how is she even do, doing this at this point? They're Maybe they hard. had done it beforehand and it was all paid for. Before all of their assets came into question? No, because the week before when she's in the train room with uh, Gordon, she says, like, I'm throwing Amabella the biggest birthday party ever. And I don't know what say. So she's done this. She's pulled this together, which, again, as someone that's dabbled in event planning, impossible. The tramp schedule isn't that wide open. There's a lot of mid-sized shitty clubs for them to play, I'm sure. (laughs) Um. So let's talk, uh, let's play another round of um, Mary Fuck Kill, this time with Ed, Gordon, and Nathan in their 70s costumes. Um, We've already talked about Ed's uh, culturally appropriated um, 70s duds. Gordon doesn't even seem to be dressed up. Like, he just looks like. kind of just how he dresses, right? Yeah, Yeah, he's got like a kind of like a nod to Travolta, but like in his own like dirtbag Gordon way. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. Kind of worked for me. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say this is this is a surprise twist, but I think I would uh, uh, in their 70s costumes, Mm -hmm. I would fuck Gordon. I'd still kill Ed and uh, Mary Nathan. You know what? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Nathan. Because, you know. Gordon, Gordon just is not, I, I, I would, I would do him with the sunglasses on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Teresa? I think I'd go the same way. I mean, Ed is just ridiculous. And like, if anyone's seen the gif of him dancing in his costume, yes. with Bonnie, yeah. it's just, it's unbearable to look at. He needs to be killed. Um, yeah, Gordon seems like a, you know, he's looking like a smarmy disco dude who, like, on some sort of coke-fueled binge, you might... Which was really hot in the 70s. Yeah, he I was going like, you know, if you're wearing some gold lame, like, That's get up on That's what everybody like. And then Nathan, I mean, I think Nathan is just, we've already established that of all the guys on this show, Nathan's the most... I don't know, desirable, I guess. Like, he's just the most normal of the dudes, except for that brief stint in which Carolyn had a thing for Principal Nipple for some reason. For some I, reason. No, I was, it was Principal desperation. <laughs> it was desperation. I was just, like, looking for anyone else other than these fools to get involved with. <laughs> so that was that was my thing with, uh, with, with Nipple. What about you, Rebecca? I am going to go with the same thing, which is a record thing that we all want to fuck Gordon this week. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Good for you, Gordon. Good for you. I mean, it, Gordon. Renata's never going to sit on his face again, as she told us last episode. So he needs some help. Uh-oh. The cat's on the move and he's making noises. I heard that. <laughs> on that note, am I still coming up for volume? Because I've, I've been monitoring my own volume and it's saying my microphone's not working right now. So We hear you. You hear me? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry about that, fans. <laughs> I can edit that out. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So we're still sort of in Disco Inferno, but we need to talk specific, specifically about hashtag SnideFox. So his, his mustache and his, and his afro were out of control, and he's dancing with Bonnie, but telling everybody else they're a bunch of pretenders. He's being a little like Holden Caulfield. You know, he's like, no one else is as cool as he is, and they don't understand the truth, and it's annoying. So then Nathan tries to pull off Ed's wig in some sort of drag queen fight, and then they slap each other like some mean girls. It is the most pathetic thing I think I've ever seen on film. Yeah, I also feel like these two just need to, like, whip out their dicks, compare them, or, like, fondle them with each other. I don't know what their thing is, but they, they need to, like, get to it. I, I don't, I'm getting really over this. Like, I think it's like very played out at this point and it's not serving any purpose unless one of them is going to kill the other one, which I don't think anyone, I, I think we'd all be kind of upset about that. Cause it, again, like all we're seeing in these like 30 second scenes where they bicker and like, look like they're going to have a fist fight. And this has been going on for two seasons now. And it's like, okay, we get it. Ed and Nathan don't like each other. Ed is creepy about Bonnie. Nathan seems to still have some unresolved feelings for Madeline. Unless these two are going to like literally wife swap. Like I don't want to keep seeing like this throwaway yeah. 30 second scene of Nathan and Ed having a Agreed. Process. Someone needs to like fuck and just get this out of their system. I don't care if it's Ed and Nathan. I don't care if it's Nathan and, yeah. and Madeline or Bonnie and Ed. Somebody Just do needs, it and move yeah, on. Yeah, something needs to happen to get this done. Last season, it at least sort of had a purpose because they were trying to, like, convince us all these different people might end up dead and who knows who killed who. But now it's just, like, it just goes from zero to 60 hatred in, like, three words for no reason half the time. And it, it just, it's like everybody's just PMSing and they're like fighting each other. It maybe makes- it's like the comic relief at this point, or so they thought it would be. Or then maybe like- it's like a commentary that typically we get like women engaged in cat fights. And on this show, we're just getting like the two men being like the catty superficial ones where the women are like actually making an effort to work through their interpersonal well, issues. that would be fine if this wasn't an episode where you didn't have, you know, the infamous slap. And Bonnie yelling at the detective and Madeline accusing her friends of talking behind her back. So there was enough like girl on girl conflict for sure that, you know, it didn't that kind of juxtaposition wouldn't really land. I just wish it was like more either more done out or not done at all. It just feels like there are literally these 30 second vignettes every episode. We should do a montage of just like all all the times that Nathan and Ed have had some confrontation this season. I'm sure it will take up no less than two minutes. And I just don't think you can have any sort of impact or have the audience invested in a conflict. If you're just going to keep tossing, like peppering in each episode, which is a little soupçon of conflict between these two. Like we don't care. We're not invested as viewers. So we also see Snidefuck and Madeline finally kind of hashing it out. Madeline kind of just being like, you know, if you're going to leave me, just leave me. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm still here. And she's like, no, are you? Yeah, he is not still there. That was the most ridiculous thing that that snide fuck has ever said. And he said a lot of ridiculous things. And Carol, like, when really I, I'm, hates him. I'm just mean to you all the time. Like, it, great, thanks. 
just, yeah. But then we also see them in bed. And Madeline's trying to get it on with him, and he just, like, wants nothing to do with it. And I'm just surprised that they're not – they're sleeping in the same bed. Do these people not have a guest room in their giant beachfront mansion? What is going on? Yeah, yeah I was like wondering a- that, too. I was like, oh, he hasn't moved out of the bedroom yet? Because I, I would have expected that that would have been, like, step one when you're, you know. That's the don't upset the kids move. If I've ever seen one, like we're going to sleep in the same bed, even though we hate each other and oh, don't want to touch each other. Oh, those children are not upset. Those children are like the problem. The children are yes. worse than they have. But no, but the children are never the problem. It's the parents misguided. It's yeah. adult child, of course. I've spent a lot of hours in therapy unpacking this. <laughs> and it's definitely like the, the parents misguided, like, well, we're going to, you know, put on a good front because we don't want our precocious 11-year-old who's already wise to way worse situations than two parents that are probably going to get divorced. She's eight. I, I think she's it's just, supposed to be eight, even though she clearly looks like Please, 15. she's 11. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be eight and have your own music label. Let's be real. 11, I think, is the minimum age. So, um... Let's talk about Jane and Celeste out on the town. We see them out at the uh, bar together. Some sort of new dive bar. I don't know. It's not exactly. Yeah, this is like bar. the diviest place we've seen them. It's not like the yeah. fire pit. Bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was, there's definitely no fire pits here. And Jane just straight up asks Celeste if Perry ever raped her. <laughs> and Celeste says no. Um. Um, sorry, um, my computer's going wonky. Um, out. no, um, what, what, uh, what was I talking about? We're going to have to edit this sucker up. Okay. Yeah. Celeste straight up asks, oh, oh. no, straight up asks Celeste, like, did your husband ever rape you? Which is an aggressive thing to ask mm-hmm. someone in a bar. And, like, how is Celeste really supposed to answer this when their whole relationship teetered on that edge of violence and lust? It's a it's a tricky one. I and I think of, the answer is yes, he did rape her. Yeah, but, like, so but I think in her mind, she never saw that as rape. Exactly. But that so, is like a, a question for the therapist's couch, not like the dive bar where Celeste is eyeing up the bartender actively. Oh, my gosh. She's so thirsty there. She's so thirsty. <laughs> um, the, the whole thing... She, Jane and Celeste, like, I want them to be friends, and I feel like they should have this connection, but I also know how awkward that would be, and I think that the scenes with them are, there's kind of this, like, undertone of awkwardness that is so uncomfortable when they're alone together, and I think mixing alcohol in that is, (laughs) that's, that's dangerous for the two of them. I mean, in a way, I think, like, they're obviously the only two people in the world that have gone through, you know, not the only two people in the world, I'm sure there are others, but in this microcosm, they're the only two that really understands the depth of who Perry really was. So right. I and why they have they on each other. I totally understand that bond. But again, I feel like it's a relationship that has, we haven't really seen enough of it to really be in, truly invested in it. Like, yes, we understand as viewers, like, okay, they've gone through a similar thing. They've experienced a similar kind of strange, like, happiness in loss, but also having to deal with the ramifications of that loss. But I I don't know. I, I struggle with this relationship. I find that, like, I disconnect in these scenes, and I'm kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, they're leaning on each other, but why are they going out to drinks? Why aren't they, you know, working well, on that's this? That's what I'm saying. Thing? It just it feels just, uncomfortable yeah. knowing that, you know, Celeste is trying to give Jane money, uh, you know, just everything 
going on, everything that has to be going on between them would be so complicated that uh, they either would form this like incredible bond at, at but I, you don't get the sense that that's what's happening. No, they don't seem they seem very uncomfortable around each other mm-hmm. still, even though they're talking about these big issues. And I think that if they had this deeper connection, I'd feel better about it. Or if they were more awkward, if yeah. they were struggling well, to interact socially instead of like going out on these one on one dates. I think Celeste, I think Jane is pretty comfortable. And I think Celeste is the one who like hasn't really confronted everything yet. Like she oh, doesn't yeah. know how to answer a question like that because she's like, uh, yeah, he probably raped me, but I was also kind of into it. And like, yeah. and she has no idea what to say to someone who is being a little bit, bit more honest and yeah, you know, or, or think, just have a less confusing experience. You I know? think Celeste also sort of treats Jane with a maternal role. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of stepped in for Jane's mother who is absent in this show and is very present in the book. And I think that Celeste is kind of like taking on that role of Jane's mother, which makes again, this like socializing and, and talking about things really difficult because we, you know, the show is called big little lies to some extent. It's about mothers lying to their children. And I think that Celeste kind of does that to Jane a little bit, like doesn't want to like fully be like, yeah, he probably did rape me, but I was into it because that invalidates, you know, to some extent, like Jane's feelings on the matter. Right. So then we see, you know, Jane leaves to go see Bonnie at the hospital. Cause Bonnie's mom has had some sort of psychic stroke psychic stroke stroke. yeah um and celeste is left behind with a tall handsome bartender and it's pretty clear that they're going to go to the bone zone but for some reason we're still supposed to be a little bit surprised the next morning when he pops out and scandalizes mary louise the next morning um but i've got some questions so like uh so i mean so we didn't see Celeste take an Ambien. I'm assuming she didn't take it like while she was at the bar and she probably maybe took it before bed to go to sleep. Although you'd think like having a few cocktails and then banging some hot new bartender would be enough to put you to sleep. But um, why doesn't she remember any of it? She has no idea this guy is even in her house. Like where was he sleeping that when she woke up, he wasn't there. I, I, don't I think the ambient habit is a lot worse than we've, as viewers, been led on to believe it is. I think she's taking it a lot more often. And, I mean, again, then I actually read an article saying this. Like, this is, like, obviously what Mary Louise ultimately does is, like, a terrifying thing, given what we've seen of Mary Louise. But Celeste is also not behaving like a great parent right now. Like, no. You know, the the drug thing and driving with the kids and bringing home randos when their kids are still clearly traumatized and working through, you know, the fact that their dad has just recently died. Like, she is not, you know, someone is going to have to bitch slap Celeste right. next so episode. So, also, did anyone get the sense that Celeste, like, was just as shocked to see? I couldn't decide if she, like, remembered that the rando, the bartender, was there. Or, like, I, I couldn't tell if she was that facial moment, that reaction when he like rounds the corner was she like oh that's right I had a fucking man here last night and he's still here straight up think she had no idea he was there yeah because so out of it and she doesn't say she's like oh I don't I don't feel very well like she doesn't I mean I have certainly blacked out before and had like no recollection of the night before like just conversations I've had so like I can understand that I think that what this show is trying to set up is that, like, this ambient thing is a real drug issue. Like, yeah, she's, she's, she's really drinking 
Yeah, you never ever do that. Is that anyone yeah. that's ever taken any sort of like psychologically prescribed drug knows the last thing you do is drink on those things. Like I don't care how mild it is, it always messes you up, and that is foolish. Yeah, I took a uh, Valium and had a couple glasses of wine once on a flight. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and, a one you're still here <laughs> yes yeah it was not it was not okay I missed my connecting flight I was a very confused individual in an airport yes. and if that is how Celeste is like going through her life right now it's terrifying it's terrifying I it is terrifying and I I want to address that a little bit more later we've talked about it a little bit but first I want to know why doesn't like homeboy have any decorum like He's a bar, he's a hot bartender. He's gone home with a lot of ladies. He can't figure out you shouldn't walk in shirtless to a living room. Like, oh, what's up? It's me, Chad. Like, how are you? With like, like you know, your mom's be her mother or her, you know, whatever, whoever that is, and her children. Yeah, I was so confused by his total inability to figure out the fucking situation and just sneak out a back door. Right. I get that, like, Celeste is going through it and the show is trying to illustrate that, but I also feel like it's pushed it a little too far. Like, I think Celeste is a good parent, like, the fact that she is being this reckless with stuff seems a little out of character to me. And I don't know if this is just like the commentary on like how unhinged Celeste is in the wake of all this and how much she's not actually processing in therapy, but it does feel like a little over the top to me. Like unless this, seems this like is the like who guy. she is, unless she is just this very like, you know, this is, this could have been who she was before she met Perry. You know, maybe she was just somebody who went out to bars and, you know, just was kind of like a lady on the prowl. And, uh, you know, maybe she had some like questionable life choices. There could have been, you know, this could be a return to who she was, you know, when she was a younger woman. Well, I want to make a slightly spoilery prediction here and say that Mary Louise might be drugging her. Oh, I don't know when she would have been able to do that exactly. But, you know, she knows where the pills are. She's been found digging around in them before. She wants a reason to be able to. I like this. Yeah. And that actually could make sense because the Celeste has really like this season. The from the first episode to the second, even I felt like there was a big difference. Like I was like, wow, things are escalating with her pretty fast. Yeah. And that could be. And the her not remembering, take, yeah. you know, like you might not remember what happens after, but it's not like it acts as these drugs act as like the minute you take them, you forget everything, even if you've been drinking. Like you would remember taking the pill and you wouldn't remember after yeah. when it kicked in. So yeah, like her not remembering taking the pills does seem suspect. Yeah, because she see like when she's saying she doesn't feel good in the morning, maybe she genuinely is like, why do I feel like this? You know? Like Mary Louise has been in her bedroom, like sneaking around. Like she could just be like putting it in her water, like her bedside water. Right. I don't know. Interesting. I like it. I like the theory. Mm-hmm. Let's hope I didn't just ruin this for everybody who listens to the podcast. I mean, it's just a theory. We don't get advanced episodes. We don't know. We're in this yeah. as blind as you are. Let's, uh, so let's get into Mary Louise and this custody battle a little bit, because I sort of had the same feeling that you did, Rebecca, which is like, I know we're supposed to be rooting for Celeste, but at this point, like, <laughs> we're seeing, assuming Mary Louise is not, not what, causing it. Um, even the therapist is kind of like, do you think maybe you should just like settle this custody battle? You know, it, she's, she's a mess. She's a danger to herself and others. She's already crashed her car. Like, Mary Louise isn't wrong in what she says to Jane, really. But so no. 
how do you as a viewer deal with this? I mean, I think Jane's reaction to this is the most telling when Mary Louise says to her, you know, have you let Ziggy drive in a car with Celeste? And Jane doesn't answer. Yeah. I mean, to me, Jane has always been the voice of reason in this show. She's been like the least of like she's the least caricature like. Mm-hmm. And I think she's our conduit as viewers to, you know, feel like we're in this group of friends. It always I personally always go through Jane because Jane is the most humanly relatable. Mm-hmm. And Jane's reaction to this, I think, is kind of supposed to be our reaction. We're, we're up until this point completely rooting for Celeste. But, you know, and Mary Louise is clearly a villain. That's been established. The show has worked very hard to establish Celeste force of good, Mary Louise force of evil. But what I think this show also does very masterfully is it never lets you fully play into those, you know, preconceived mm-hmm. notions of the characters. So Jane's silence on that matter. It's like, yeah, Celeste can be a good parent, but she can also be a danger to her kids. Those things can exist at the same time. And Mary Louise is not going to see both of those things at the same time. But Jane is. And I think that Jane's silence is the first time she's really been forced to confront the fact that Celeste is not as perfect a parent as, you know, Jane would like her to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, I think that the scene with the therapist, I really sensed a difference in how the therapist was interacting with her here and what the therapist was saying. I was like picking up on, you know, the therapist is like, well, you know, I can't testify against you because of doctor patient confidentiality, but. You should probably just try to settle this. You should probably just do something. Basically, yeah, insinuating that if I could testify against you, mm-hmm. like, uh, you'd probably lose the kids. Yeah, yeah. It was the first time that I almost felt like this therapist who has been sort of on Celeste's side and has been, you know, like last season we we praised how much, you know, how great we, we felt she was. And I still think she is great for Celeste. But here is the first time where I feel like this therapist is not fully on her side She's kind of telling her like, well, I, I let, let me warn you. I think things are not good right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was a very telling moment for where Celeste is at. Like in in those therapy sessions is, you know, what we're going to accept is Celeste at her most real. And in her most real, she is being told like, you're 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 in danger right now. Like you need a, a different kind of girl. danger than she was the, diff- the first season. Now it's like herself that she's, you know. She's in danger from herself. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's move on to the what I'm now calling the Carlson Coven because they <laughs> love that these people into straight up witches. I don't know what's happening over there. Um, so Renata's mom does not like the energy in Renata's house, which is Bonnie's fair. Mom. like Bonnie's no. mom. Bonnie's mom doesn't like who did the I energy. Renata's said, mom. Oh, sorry. But like I, I, speaking of, I really want to meet Renata's mom. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently she's very poor because Renata will not go back to being poor in her childhood. Sorry. Okay. Bonnie's I mom picture doesn't like Roseanne Barr as her mom, and I'm mad that that's what I picture. But I I full on picture like Roseanne as Renata's mom. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. I'm so, not at all implying that we that she should be on this show or be doing anything. These should um, not taint little lives with Roseanne. We we talked about Roseanne last week too. Stop. Getting into the show, Roseanne. <laughs> I, people, I want to do a podcast about the show Roseanne and where Roseanne herself went wrong because that show was genius and I'm still upset about what's happening. Until the, the racist fueled ambient meltdown. Yeah. I, yeah. See? Yeah. See ambient. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to Bonnie's mom. She, um, doesn't like the energy in Renata's house, which no one can blame her for because that place is a mess. But um, 
her response to that is to try to read Bonnie's mind by grabbing her head while dancing. Um, No, thanks. This is all so problematic. I'm not about this, this whole situation. So like why this season did they decide they need to add this element of like mysticism and, uh, you know, like, why did we need this? Like, and why did we need it attached to, like, truly the only, like, full person of color in the show? Like, well, it, yes, that so is problematic. Yeah, that is for sure problematic. But, like, I just, I just feel like it is such a bizarre twist to all of a sudden have this, like, you know, kind of this otherworldly Buffy the Vampire Slayer shit going on. Yes, because this was a show really rooted in reality, other than the bizarre, like, virginity auction. Like, everything was totally real and relatable and, like, stuff that happens to real people. And now we just have some random psychic lady running around having psychic strokes because they touched Renata's hand. Yeah, like, I could have understand, I could have understood, rather, the... Like, if, if her mom just kind of had, like, a dream and kept wanting to, like, talk about this, like, one dream she had. And maybe in the past she has had, like, my mom claims that she's had some clairvoyant dreams. She's not, like, grabbing my head and having, like, moments with me where she needs to share psychic energy. But mm-hmm. my mother has claimed to have had clairvoyant dreams. Mm-hmm. And I would have accepted that on a level of reality. <laughs> but mm-hmm. what is going on here, you know, again, like, having it be Bonnie's mom having it be that character the way they're handling it the way that it is presented in this very um yeah it's it's just bizarre it it seems to come from a different show i mean we did have like the dream visions in season one both with like madeline and the puppets and jane almost running off the cliff and i would have been totally on board with that element like keeping mm-hmm. it in the dream world. Not I somebody- almost feel like they're trying to like uh, explain that dream vision element by introducing this character and explain like why they keep cutting to these crashing wave montages. Like the show could then argue like, well, we've actually been planting clues about this in season one because we had the dream visions and the waves and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That would be total bullshit because none of those dreams like, you know, the puppet dream didn't come true. That's just a stress dream. And like right. Bonnie or um, Jane running down the beach, like that's, PTSD. Yeah. Dreams, not like prediction dreams right. that are. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm grasping here because I don't understand the choice they're making here, and it's upsetting me. And <laughs> I don't really get where. I mean, literally, we've got two episodes left, and they're not going to come to any meaningful resolution in two episodes about why they've introduced this character and introduced this element of mystic psych psychic nonsense. I mean, it well, just. So this stroke hasn't actually impaired her clairvoyant no. abilities, apparently. Because I think it was a stroke. I mean, yes, that's what the doctor says, but like it seemed like it was a reaction to a psychic event and not like a blood clot that caused this. Right. It it seemed very like. Although they did do the surgery was for a blood clot in her neck. Yeah, I, I know that's like medically what it was going on, but it seemed like in the actual moment it was a reaction and they can't juxtapose those two things together and then walk back and be like, it was science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she blinded me with science. Well, so oh Bonnie God. is either so moved by her mom starting to wake up or she is just finally like, you want to know what's going on so bad? Here you go. And she touches her arm and she, we don't see 
you know, her mom doesn't see Bonnie pushing her down the stairs or pushing Bonnie, pushing um, Perry down the stairs, which she sees is Bonnie drowning. And, but this seems just like way too obvious for the show. Like, I think it's a red herring. What do you think? I don't know. See, I'm conflicted about this because there is, there has sort of been this, like this whole season, sort of this buildup that maybe someone's going to end up like, you know, we'll have another death. And and it has been implied that it's going to be water and all these like flashbacks to Bonnie being pushed under the water to learn how to hold her breath. Uh, that maybe Bonnie will end up being killed and someone's going to like hold her underwater. And like, I feel like it's more likely she's going to commit suicide by water. Mm-hmm. Mm, I, I, I worry about that too, but I, I also just wonder, uh, you know, I, I don't want to have this happen. Cause I feel like this would be the most trite of, of uh, plots, but like Mary Louise learning that Bonnie did this and Mary Louise taking justice Mm-hmm. and drowning her. Uh, yeah, that, that could be yeah. way out of the custody battle as well. Like maybe she's winning, but then she goes to jail for murdering Bonnie so Celeste gets her kids back or something. Yeah. That would be satisfying, I guess. I mean, I, I could see that happening. I Like I said, I feel like it might be a little bit a little bit out there, but I think this season we have no way of, there's no out there anymore. <laughs> Just like a general thing, out there. Like, do you think we're getting a season three or are they trying to like wrap this up? No, I, mean, I think they're going to go in for a season three if they can. The only reason I ask this is like, you've got some like stacked actresses mm-hmm. in this cast that I'm sure have like a lot of contract conflicts, especially Mary Louise Streep. Like, well, I, I think can't imagine scheduling wise, this is going to be the easiest to sustain for 12, you know, seven seasons in a movie. I think that Mary Louise is a one and done season character. So if then that means is, you got to get resolution. Either Mary Louise is going to die or go to jail. Right. I don't think Mary Louise is going to be the type to just move away and be like, all right, well, I guess I'll get you next time. These meddlesome kids. Like, I, yeah. I don't see that happening. She's going to either have to be bumped off or end up in jail because she's killed Bonnie. For sure, for sure. I think it's like it's like Mary, it's uh, Mary Louise. Well, Meryl Streep, Meryl, Meryl Louise Streep didn't do Mamma Mia two really. Like she, her name was like peripherally attached to it. She was in like five scenes, uh, but I kind of feel like that's that's Meryl Streep has said she doesn't do sequels. I don't know. I mean, she's never done TV before, so I don't know if she'd count another season as a sequel. But I feel like. This her character is gonna like reach its full conclusion so by the end of the season. She's gonna get like maybe the Alexander Skarsgård trees. Yes. Where yeah. she might appear in She'll a couple of in, mm-hmm. in season three, but like she's out. Okay. Yes. So I think that they are building up where a season three can go minus her and maybe minus one of the Monterey Five. Okay. Mm-hmm. I feel it. Yeah. So this episode is called "She Knows" and. I think the beginning of the Halloween party is trying to suggest that Mary Louise knows something. But then by the end, we have this vision from Bonnie's psychic mom that she knows something. Uh, who do you think? Also, the detective potentially mm-hmm. could be another. Even she though knows. she was there for another patient, uh, that did seem that did seem oddly coincidental that she happened to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I think the the beauty of that title is that it probably refers to numerous characters. Ooh, what if the detective is like in with Elizabeth, Bonnie's mom, and somehow has like gotten to Bonnie's mom to like get Bonnie to go to like confess? 
Simply that, because they're the only two black people in Monterey? No. <laughs> no. But I'm just, but like, it did seem odd that she was there, even though they said she was there for some other patient. There seemed to be too easy of an explanation for why she happened to be there. Well, we, oh, it also gives us a reason to see, like, just Bonnie. how close to the precipice Bonnie is. Because yeah. the moment she sees her, she just starts screaming at it. Yeah. So let's make some official predictions. Because we've only got two episodes left. And I still am very confused as to, like, what the, like, we knew in season one that this was all building up to a murder and finding out who was killed and who killed them. So... Like, what are we building up to here? What are your major predictions? So we've gone over them a little bit, but now I'm forcing you to put them officially on the record. Well, I think for tensions, like the main tensions we've obviously got is the tension between Mary Louise is now become an express tension between like who's getting custody of the, the murdery twins, mm-hmm. which like who really cares? Like, yeah. this is terrifying. <laughs> like, take them. I'd be like, great. It's your problem now, Mary Louise. And I think obviously the other like B tension is, are uh, Renata and Gordon, you know, potentially A, becoming destitute, potentially going to jail and then the dissolving of uh, Ed and Madeline's marriage. Those are like the three big conflicts we've been dealing with. And obviously like the fallout of Perry's murder. But I think that all three of those are kind of subsumed by the conflict of season one. So I it's hard to predict at this point because there's so little runway left. And I feel like this season, to some extent, there's been a lot of exposition and not a lot of like moving the ball forward in terms of like tension. Whereas the the conceit last season really worked well because you were constantly reminded of the murder through the talking heads. Like, yes, we're getting there. There's something big coming up. And mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel that way about this season. I've really, really liked this season. Don't get me wrong. I think it, in some ways it's stronger than season one. I just like I'm very unclear as to where we're going at this point. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Rebecca, that like this season, it, it has been a very long runway to a takeoff. And there is not we don't have we have two episodes. So what what is going to happen? Like, are is are we going to get something big in this next episode? We've got three, right? Five, six, seven. Oh, three. OK, yeah. so in the next I, I feel like. We, there isn't a lot of time left for something big to happen. And, and they have been kind of playing at, like, all these things that could happen. Um, I, and it could be an interesting, this whole season could kind of be a build-up to a big third season. Um, that I'm not going to rule that out. I do think, though, like I said, that somehow uh, this season is going to wrap on the character of Mary Louise for us. And... Uh, and that we're going to have, uh, I, I think that somebody, I think that we will see somebody die. Those are my big predictions. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about the previews. The um, the only thing in the previews for next week that really stood out to me that was of real interest were the Monterey Five standing around in a parking lot by the beach again because who loves covering up their crimes more than a bunch of ladies hanging out at a beach. Um, Madeline says they have to prove we were lying. And then Bonnie asks, what if they can, which is like, who is all of a sudden that close to catching these ladies? Like, what, what do you think's going on there? Like, where's the physical evidence? Like, right. Is it going to just be a confession? Like that seems to me to be the only way that they're going to know, unless like there's, a camera or something in that building, in which case like the police would have already found. So what is the deal? 
Part of me also wonders, like, if Ed is sort of, like, he knows something went down. You know what I mean? And we just, he hasn't said anything. Like, he seems really suspicious in a way of everybody that, except for Bonnie, oddly, um, that seems odd to me. I guess, though, I mean, if he was suspicious of everybody but Bonnie but knew what went down, like, wouldn't that make him somewhat suspicious of Bonnie? Yeah. Bonnie was the one that actually pushed him. Or that he feels, like, sympathy for Bonnie because somehow, I I don't know. Or he's just, like, he likes her because he's trying to make... Well, we already know. I think he's clueless. I think he's just... I think he's just a clueless... I think he thinks that all of this drama stemmed from the fact that Madeline had this affair and all the girls knew about it and he didn't blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't think he's got a clue that there's this bigger issue at hand. And if he did, like, I don't think he'd be behaving like such a snide fuck. So, um, all right, let's move on to the best slash worst person in Monterey this week. Rebecca, who do you think? I mean, I'm toss up between... I don't know. Obviously, Mary Louise is the devil, but like Celeste doing all this ambient is not a good look. Mm-hmm. And then for me, I mean, this Ed cultural appropriation moment was not great. So we got a lot of bad people in Monterey this week. I was not like loving really anybody. I mean, and like Renata was kind of being a B too. Like, I don't know. It wasn't. That's her. That's her. Game. That's her That's, her, that's yeah. her jam. I, I yeah. give Renata now like way. I, she's got way more leeway with me because I think she's fabulous this season. So I think I'm going to go with I've got to pick a hard person. I think I'm going with Celeste this week because she's not doing herself any favors. Well, I was also going to say Celeste or Ed because like you want to bring home hot bartenders. That's fine. But you should at least like try to remember that you did yeah, that. Remember uh, unless she's being drugged. Celeste, unless Mary right. Louise is dragging her, in which case all is forgiven. And then I also said, I'm just going to go with Ed because he was my other choice for. Yeah, Ed is the worst. He was the worst. So for me in every episode, you'd say Ed if you could. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> but like this, you know, where where she where Madeline accuses him of like not being there. And he's like, no, I'm here. That was just such a fucking like I, I just hate like men like saying something like that to a, to a woman's face. Like that is like you are not there. He is the definition of checked out. And uh Oh, then his wig, that stupid wig on his stupid fucking face. Um, it, so Ed was, to me, the worst. And the best was Renata. Because, you know, here she is having to give up her wedding ring, her Tesla. Everything's falling apart. But she still can, like, put it together in her gold lame dress, her little beret, and boogie down and put on a smile and, like, just be this, like, queen bitch of ridiculousness. So power to you, Renata. Live it up while you still can. <laughs> that those are my best and worst. Did it, Rebecca? Did you pick a best? I mean, I guess I'm gonna default to Jane. I <laughs> I didn't really feel like anybody was like a standout this week, but like Jane enough, and like she's still going through it. So yeah, I'll go with Jane. I still I, hate her boyfriend though. I, I think I'm weirdly gonna say Madeline just because I think she sort of like gets the most improved award. Like she lets. Mary Louise into her house which like I would be like no bitch you keep being mean to me you can't come in here and then she also finally is just like listen Ed like just be real with me are you leaving like let's have an actual talk here because you just being nasty all the time like forever isn't gonna work and she doesn't slap the shit out of her kid when she insinuates that she or, or she uses Ugh. her school project to tell everyone that her mom is unhinged. Yeah, like, that was rude. Like, I would have been like, you're grounded. Don't ever talk to me again. Give me you're grounded and I'm putting you up for adoption. Bye. Yes. Like, you're going to live with Nathan and Bonnie. Just yeah. Like, yeah. Enjoy. Nathan anymore. 
Um, what's your favorite outfit? Okay, so I did, I asked the fans on Instagram and did a quick poll, and their response, as is mine, was Celeste's rainbow pride fantasy look. Yeah. That got the most <laughs> love, and I think for good reason. I think that she looked like a dream. Yeah, she should have been at Amabella's drag birthday party from uh from the preseason. Um, Which like HBO, where is our invite? Is there anything we love more than the intersection of famous drag queens and Big Little Lies? I no. think not. Yeah. <laughs> How did we not get invited to that? Uh, for me, best outfit goes to Ziggy dressed as Ziggy Stardust. I do get love that. Is that? I miss. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, no, he dresses in like a full David Bowie like yes. Ziggy Stardust yes. getup. And and I loved that. I was really so I have to say, like, I understand the timing works, but like I never have thought of like Ziggy Stardust as disco. Like, come on. No, right. no, the period they went with like she just went like seventies. Like Jane yeah. was also Fine. dressed for a disco. She was dressed like, you know like a hippie. Hippie. Yeah. yeah. But listen, but... if you're throwing a disco party, you gotta be disco. I'm no, very fair. I sure. thought a disco party for my boyfriend's 30th birthday. It was a dirty 30 disco party. And like, I was pissed at the people that were showing up in like 70s hippie stuff. I'm like, the invitation said dirty 30 disco, not like Woodstock 69. Were you dressed like Renata? Please tell me. Um, I was not, although I wish I was. I was dressed more like a Celeste. I had like a stripy rainbow chevron jumpsuit and I looked great. Amazing. <laughs> Um, I also, I think a, um, a wardrobe runer up for me, uh, well, all the kids, I loved how they like, yeah, the kids looked cute, costumed all the kids for sure. But and Ed should have taken notes from the twin with the mustache. Cause he did yes. like a facial hair, right? Like uh, that mustache yeah. was hilarious. Um, but my runner up was, um, Madeline's disco outfit yeah. because in the bright pink it like brought me back to I was I was getting some Elle Woods vibes from her yeah, totally yes I really liked Madeline's outfit too and not like in a I want to wear that kind of way but there was something it's and her hair too the like short yes. curly permed hair like Reese Witherspoon just looked super cute in that outfit yeah um so do you guys have a favorite bitchy line from the show Oh, it's got to be the foreplay line for me. Yeah, the foreplay. Yeah, there's nothing. I'm devastated. <laughs> nothing else in this episode could reach the peak of that moment. No. So, um, Rebecca, what's your re- recommendation for this week? Hmm, okay, so my recommendation is generally anything Phoebe Waller-Bridge does. Um, oh, whether that's be the writing of like the first season of Killing Eve. It's fab. But really, specifically, season two of Fleabag. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen Fleabag, like, please run. Don't walk to go watch it. It's not long. It is hilarious. She breaks the fourth wall in a way that is just, it works so perfectly. But season two in particular deals with her sort of falling in love with a Catholic priest who was only ever referred to as hot priest. Mm-hmm. And I had to go to a series of Catholic weddings the last couple of weeks. And let me tell you, this is the sexiest experience I ever had in a Catholic church, going to Catholic church after having watched season two of Fleabag. I was like, okay, I don't hate this as much as I usually do. It's titillating <laughs> me now. So yeah, Fleabie Waller-Bridge in general, anything she does is gold, but specifically season two of Fleabag is really worth watching. I would second that. It was really good. And I'm glad you remembered because it, I loved it. A priest. Um, all right. My recommendation for this week, I'm going to do a throwback recommendation. Um, there is a movie with Diane Lane and Vigo Mortensen, who is 
just Aragorn, the true king of Gondor. Yes, him. Uh, he played. The movie is called A Walk on the Moon, and it takes place in the summer of 1969. Oh, and Reese Witherspoon is in it, right? No, she is not. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, she is not. The little the uh, Diane Lane's daughter. It came out in this came out in the late 90s, and Diane Lane's daughter is uh, Anna Paquin. Okay. Uh, who's terrific. But uh, basically, Diane Lane plays this young mother who is, you know, her family spends the summer at the Catskills Resort. Um, and the husband comes up from New York on the weekends. And meanwhile, Diane Lane gets involved in this affair with Vigo Mortensen, who is uh, the blouse man. He's this like, you know, rambling hippie who comes to the resort to sell blouses to women out of an RV. Uh, yeah. Uh, there is a scene in a waterfall that is just, I'm still waiting for my waterfall moment in life from <laughs> this movie. But um, it is, it's a movie that kind of struggles with some of the same, uh, you know, some of those same issues that we see these, some of, in some of the same, same ways, uh, like kind of can, keeping this lie at bay and, uh, but, you know, facing your true feelings towards things. It's a really, it's a really well done movie. It's a great like summer watch. And um, it's, it's definitely, definitely worth it to check out. Uh, it's available to watch on Hulu, I believe. And also uh, I guess I should throw in a, um, a recommendation to check out the uh, law and order podcast that had me on as a special guest. Uh, and one somebody Oh, Teresa Rebecca will also be on soon, um, but you should definitely check out the podcast. These are their stories, uh, and it's really fun. It looks at in depth an episode of Law and Order, um, you know, classic or SVU or Criminal Intent, and uh, and it also then go like takes a look at the real crime that the episode is based on. So mm -hmm. it's super fun. I'm a huge Law and Order SVU fan. So this was like. A dream come true. I also spent a day uh, working on the set of that. Uh, I had two scenes, one of which got cut. But the important thing is, is I I got to I got to live the dream and work on the set of Law and Order. So for sure, check out that. Um. So the movie I was randomly screaming about that has Reese Witherspoon in it from the '90s is called The Man in the Moon. There ah, yes. Days. She's like 12 or something, and she's like a young farm girl who's got a crush on um, one of the London brothers. I don't know which one, Jeremy or Jason. Um, and it's a really cute little coming-of-age movie and is also, according to the internet right now, is available on Hulu. So you could watch it there. Oh, uh, the other thing with A Walk on the Moon is there's a mother-in-law character who is basically the opposite of Mary of Mary Louise. And it's a very interesting dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, that act, the actor is that, uh, Tova, the, I can't remember her last name, but she is, she's phenomenal. She does a lot of like theater in, in, in New York and, um, definitely check out both of those movies. I know which one you're talking about now. I remember that Reese Witherspoon one. She spends a lot of time in a swimming hole, as I remember. Um, so on the, the cat skill, the mention of the cat skills got me thinking about dirty dancing, of course, but, but that then also got me thinking about, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes, with, I was about to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of critics sort of did not like the Catskills uh, jaunt that that show took in season two, but I loved it because I, I loved it. I world. I 
And um, the show's creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, her father was actually like a Borscht Belt comedian who played the Catskills and stuff as a kid. Or not as a kid, but when she was a kid. So I, I, and of course she loves Dirty Dancing as anyone who watched Gilmore Girls knows. So, um, and I constantly make jokes about my very old cat, Jerry, being, his name is Jerry Katowski, and he is a Borscht Belt comedian, and we, like, do stand-up routines from his point of view all the time. So I would recommend watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon. It's, I love it. It's so beautiful and funny and weird and unlike anything else on TV. Um I've got one more thing to add just while we're on the topic of looking ahead um, to things you might want to stream or listen to. Tomorrow, we are going to be on uh, the Big Little Podcast. It's actually getting featured on the Colin McEnroe Show, which is how all three of us met. We are all recurring co-panelists on WNPR's The Colin McEnroe Show, specifically the cultural roundup program known as The Nose. So Mm -hmm. tomorrow's episode of The Nose is going to feature us uh, talking about the podcast and all of you that have made this podcast possible. So uh, if you're not in Connecticut, which is where we're actually located, fun fact, Mm -hmm. um, and want to listen to it live in Connecticut, you can stream it online at www.wnpr.com. Dot org, I believe, is the address. And that could be after, wrong. <laughs> after that, um, we'll share it, too, on all of our various social medias, which are, um, you can follow Instagram and Facebook are at Big Little Podcast, and then Twitter is at Big Little Pod. So lots of fun stuff ahead. Look for um, that tomorrow, and we will catch you next week. Ooh, ooh.